was a beautiful place to live. We had all the trees. The trees came straight down Humboldt, uh, all the way past my house. It felt safe. Beyond the beauty, it had a sense of um, lifting your spirits. Imagine coming out of the house every morning and you live in the park. It was great. Stephanie Barber Jeter grew up in Buffalo, New York. As a child in the 1960s, she lived on the Humboldt Parkway, a boulevard designed by the renowned landscape architect Frederick Law Olmsted. Frederick Law Olmsted is perhaps the greatest landscape architect America has produced, designer of Central Park. The father of landscape architecture came to Buffalo with an invitation to put a park in the city, decided instead that the real thing to do is put the city in a park system. The Humboldt Parkway was built in the mid-19th century as part of the first urban park system in the United States. It connected two larger Olmsted-designed parks on the periphery of downtown Buffalo on the city's east side. We would run from Humboldt um, over to Genesee, Genesee Street, where there were movie houses and stores and all bars, which we couldn't go in, but you could watch the people go in, right? Um, yeah, it was it was great, y'all. It was. I remember the circus coming to town and bringing the elephants down, the animals down the street, down Genesee, and the president came. He was waving from the back of the car, and uh, just things that, as a kid, you find so exciting. We were, it was a delightful time. My producer Aaron Bump and I meet Stephanie in her hometown. Today, Buffalo may be the butt of many a joke, a city defined by its bad weather and sports futility. But not so long ago, Buffalo was considered the best designed city in America and maybe in the entire world. The Humboldt Parkway and its network of parks were so lush with trees that they were called the Emerald Necklace. Or at least they were until the 1950s. One day they came and they dropped a big pile of rocks, right? Right in front of our house in the middle of the road. And we kept saying, Grandma, what's going on? What's going on? No cars. We got these rocks. And um, I remember her saying, this is supposed to be urban renewal. And and after a couple of weeks, she changed it. She said, I think this is about the removal of some people. What was going on was the construction of the Kensington Expressway, a six-lane sunken highway. It would connect downtown Buffalo with its new airport and the suburbs springing up to the east. For it to be built, Frederick Law Olmsted's emerald necklace was torn apart. My um, grandmother thought it was a tragedy um, to tear it up and to make something that was no longer usable by the people who lived here because you couldn't cross the street now. You had to walk blocks to get on the other side. You know, it was hard to understand why such a beautiful place would be given up. Yeah. I kept thinking they were going to fix it back to where it was. But when I saw the trees dragged away, I said, I hope they're going to save those trees to bring them back, you know. But no. And the construction of the highway didn't just affect the landscaping. It impacted daily life for its neighbors, too. Well, it was dirty all the time. The outside, you know, the dust was everywhere. If it rained, it was a perpetual mudslide. You know, you, you're in mud all the time. And as kids, you know, you bring it in the house, you know. Uh, my grandmother was always mopping and sweeping. 
when the weather was dry and warm, um, people were trying to spray off their driveways and their porches. And I remember the grass in our yard dying. I have no idea why. Just died. Boy, this is too much, you know. When you go from very vibrant to very almost dead, you feel a sense of that a little bit of you is dying too. Stephanie's family moved out in the mid-1960s. When she grew up, she moved back to her old neighborhood. But instead of living by the Humboldt Parkway, today Stephanie lives near the Kensington Expressway. She's now the president of the Restore Our Community Coalition, which has advocated for the restoration of the emerald necklace for the past 15 years. Now I understand it, um, that it was about not so much um, removing people, but um, providing a path for some people to get in and out quickly. And the, and the best way was, was to do this. Now, was it right? Absolutely not. Because the long-term effects were terrible. And no one took that into consideration. And according to Brother Bell, another activist on Buffalo's East Side. And I know Frederick Long said it's turning over in his grave. Americans famously have a love affair with their cars. William Faulkner once wrote, The American really loves nothing but his automobile, not his wife, his child, nor his country, nor even his bank account first. Cars and car crashes are threaded throughout American culture, from the real-life death of James Dean to the fictional suicide by Otto and Thelma and Louise. You might even say Americans have a love affair with the car crash, as witnessed by the 103 cars demolished in the Blues Brothers movie. That's fiction, of course, but it has echoes of real life. If you wonder why life expectancy in the U.S. lags so far behind our peer nations, it's largely because of what happens to us in midlife. Homicides, drug overdoses, obesity-related diseases, and automobile deaths. Deaths from traffic collisions in the U.S. are stubbornly high, higher than any other advanced economy in the world. According to the World Health Organization, our fatality rate per capita is two and a half times that of France and six times Norway. If we reduce our fatal traffic crashes to the per capita rates of Japan, we would save more than 30,000 lives every year, often young people, disproportionately with low incomes. We express concern about guns and homicides in this country, but automobile-related deaths account for double the number of homicide fatalities every year, and we just accept it as a fact of life. It wasn't always this way. For many years, automobile safety was a success story in the U.S., not because we became better drivers, but because seatbelts, airbags, and automobile design made driving much safer. Between 1970 and 2008, the automobile death rate was cut in half, and then progress stopped and ultimately reversed. Today, our automobile death rate is higher than it was 15 years ago. We successfully redesigned the car, but that's the easy part. The redesign of our cities and how we get around them, that's the hard part. This is a story about how American cities went from places to drive to, to places to drive through. How that has impacted our health and well-being, and how we can fix it. 
From the Stanford Center on Longevity, this is Century Lives, a lifetime of inequality. I'm producer Aaron Bump. And I'm your host, Ken Stern. Paradise, put up a parking lot. With a pink hotel, a boutique, and a swinging hot spot. Support for this podcast comes from AARP, the nation's largest nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to empowering people 50 and older to choose how they live as they age. To find out more, visit aarp.org. And from the National Council on Aging, the national voice working to ensure that every person can age with health, financial security, and dignity. Learn more at ncoa.org. The Kensington Expressway was built in the 1950s and 60s, at the same time the interstate highway system was being constructed across the U.S. Whoa, it's hard to believe there is a time without highways. Beth Osborne works at a national nonprofit called Smart Growth America. She's the vice president of their transportation arm. After President Eisenhower, who had been uh, you know, our general during World War II, saw the sophisticated Audubon in uh, Germany, came back to the United States and said the federal government should be creating a strong intercity highway network that can support uh, deployment of uh, troops in case of attack. And that's not really what it's ended up being used for. Uh, but it uh, did build on that effort of the states to better connect farms to market, uh, uh, other kinds of industry to ports, and communities to each other. And while our interstate highways were under construction, the federal government also invested in a particular type of intrastate highway, ones that connected cities with their expanding suburbs. So at the time in the 1950s, we were seeing urban uh, areas really start to struggle. Um, homes were being built in the suburbs. People with money were moving out there to avoid overcrowding in the cities, to avoid pollution. Uh, and often white folks were moving out. Um, there was a big effort to first protect downtown businesses by making sure there was a super easy high-speed way for people to get from those suburban communities back down to those businesses. And so you needed the highways to go smack through the city. In cities across America, highways were built through low-income, primarily black neighborhoods, through the path of least political resistance. City officials called it urban renewal, but the roads depleted daily life in the communities they tore through. People don't tend to put, you know, a restaurant next to a highway. People don't tend to want to get there, you know, or get coffee uh, in cafe seating next to 50 mile per hour traffic. And people don't tend to want a front yard facing that either. So the property values go down. We create affordability in this country, sadly, by uh, creating an unattractive environment rather than focusing on helping people be able to afford to live in a nice environment. Case in point, the Kensington Expressway in Buffalo. As its construction neared, the demographics of the neighborhood around it began to change. It was also a very white site until announcements in the early 50s that they were going to build. Dr. Henry Lewis Taylor Jr. is a professor of urban studies at the University of Buffalo. He studies the challenges facing African-American communities in Buffalo and across the nation. 
Dr. Taylor tells us that before the Kensington Expressway was built, there were efforts to stop Black people from buying property along the Humboldt Parkway. They couldn't wrap their heads around the reality that someone would destroy something so beautiful. And, you know, it's it's sort of like Central Park, for example. And uh, someone says, don't go to the park anymore. They're going to tear it down and turn it into a parking lot. You would just, you could, what? <laughs> I can't believe. Get out of here, man. As the construction of the highway drew nearer, more Black people moved into the neighborhood. It was like manna from heaven. It meant that the white people living over there could sell their houses to these fools. The real estate folks would make a profit. Then the people would go out into the suburbs and buy new houses And then black people would move in and would feel good for about one minute before they realized that they'd been duped, thinking they were moving into this magnificent and wonderful neighborhood when actually they were moving next to a highway. City officials wanted to link the whiter, wealthier suburbs with downtown Buffalo and connect the city with the airport. It was all about preserving the city's economic vitality at the expense of its residents. After a 15-year construction phase, the Kensington Expressway was completed in 1970. Fast forward half a century, and today the life expectancy of the neighborhoods all along the highway are among the lowest in New York State. I don't believe that with the knowledge, the resources, and the talented people that we have in this country, that anybody ought to live in a place like the East Side. And why is that? Imagine more than 100,000 cars spurring tons of vehicular pollution into the atmosphere, generating uh, hundreds of decibels of noise. And imagine a place that has no trees, no foliage to protect the population what do you think would happen to those the people who live there? It would devastate. It would, it would spawn and accelerate the decay of houses. It would devalue property, cause people to live less, have shorter lives, fewer good health days, increase hardships. Yeah, it would do all of those things, and it did it. I mean, the only thing that that we don't know is that we did not document the full extent of, of the losses. Instead of imagining the full extent of the loss, we decide to go see the highway for ourselves. Okay, so we're in Buffalo, uh, and we are heading towards 33, sometimes known as the Kensington Expressway. Do you happen to know where the Kensington Expressway goes? Absolutely no idea. Do you? Well, yeah, because I'm staring at a map. Where does it go? I I, want to know. Well, we are at the end of it, heading north through the neighborhoods adjacent to downtown Buffalo. And we're driving fast. I'm doing 60 in the middle of uh, Buffalo, and people are passing me, which I don't like. I want to drive faster now. 
and you can see why this would get you in and out of town pretty quickly. Like a lot of urban expressways, it goes past homes that no one wants to live in because you're on a freeway, essentially. So um, it's described as a trench. There are walls that are probably 20 feet high on either side. Um, you can see over them in some places to uh, some boarded-up houses on one side. They're occasional every half mile or so there's an overpass with streets that take you from one side of the, the highway to the other but you wouldn't want to walk across it you can't walk across the highway of course because I'm now doing I'm now doing 65 what do you see Erin? well I saw blocks and blocks of single family houses like formerly nice looking houses so if you can imagine we're on a six lane highway it was a, basically six-lane highways worth of green space between the two sides of the street with all the houses facing the parkway. And now we've got all the houses facing the expressway. You can imagine sort of the, the beauty of this neighborhood. You can see some houses that actually you can tell people have fixed up and tried to renovate. Um, but you can almost picture, feel a little bit of what must have been a very nice neighborhood. Yeah. Right, left? Um, whichever, you can go on the parkway or the expressway. Okay, let's go back to the expressway. Highways don't only impact the lives of people who live near them. They also affect those who drive on them. The United States has a traffic collision problem. According to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, nearly 43,000 people died in crashes in 2022. Over the past decade, these deaths increased by over 25%. There's actually a direct correlation between vehicle miles traveled and life expectancy. On average, the more miles you drive, the shorter your projected lifespan. But as fatalities increase in the United States, they continue to decrease in other high-income countries. Beth Osborne explains why. In the U.S., we design always for speed. Designing for speed and trying to minimize the time it takes to get people and goods from place to place sounds logical, but it is not a universal priority. Other uh, countries did not blast through their most valuable historic property with a highway. Uh, but they also, even on those local roads, they've always designed the road to make it hard to behave in a way that they know is dangerous and easy to behave in a way that they know is safe. It's hard to do what's wrong, and they don't have to enforce as much. Some people always misbehave, but in the United States, even the safest drivers make mistakes because they naturally do what the roadway has been designed for them to do, and that behavior is unsafe. While everything we do is very auto-centric, it's actually quite driver-hostile. There's a clear trade-off between speed and safety, and the American approach is out of step with the rest of the world. And uh, the U.S. was the one country that said the way we will do it is we will wag our fingers at those misbehaving drivers and pedestrians out there. And if we wag hard enough, they'll start to behave. And then we will add super heavy enforcement in case people don't listen when we tell them to stop it. And that has failed repeatedly for decades. This approach to traffic safety is known as the three E's, engineering, education, and enforcement. It's based on a century-old philosophy. 
Drivers aren't the only ones who are failed by our outdated traffic safety standards. More than 7,500 people killed in traffic crashes last year were pedestrians. In the past decade, pedestrian deaths increased by over 75%. The danger of walking in the United States is perfectly connected to income. You are least likely to be killed walking in a wealthy community, and you're most likely to be killed walking in a poor community. And at every stage of poverty, the, uh, the risk goes up. And on Buffalo's east side, there are a lot of walkers. And imagine what those sidewalks look like in the wintertime when there's snow on the ground. People are forced into the streets. In a lot of places, you've got to walk in the street anyway because the sidewalks are so bad. And so because they walk, they're always forced, placed into harm's way. And why are people walking? They don't have a car. You have a, a large population without car ownership. And not only is ownership limited, but many of the owners uh, in these communities have what I call the prayer car. You know the prayer car? No, you you get up in the morning, you go out, and you pray to God that it starts. (laughs) We call that the prayer car. And so (laughs) many people on the east side, they got the prayer car. You know, that's why they go to church so much. (laughs) And some residents of Buffalo's east side have to walk there. And life is very, very different for a walker who walks for joy, fun, and relaxation, and someone who is walking as a form of, 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 of transportation. Because they're going to be out there on those streets at a lot of different hours, and they're going to be confronting drivers in a lot of different circumstances. It's, it's not just the traffic, but it's the reality of the walker and why they're walking combined with uh, the conditions that exist on, in terms of, of the level of infrastructure. In the American West, we build our cities with the car in mind. In the East, cities were built before the car and we retrofitted them to cater to car culture. But even though cars are part of our national DNA, collisions are not inevitable. Over the last four years, Hoboken, New Jersey, had zero traffic deaths, a singular success story in the United States. The city redesigned intersections with traffic-calming measures to reduce speeds. It added crossing signals that allow pedestrians to walk while traffic is stopped, To stop cars from blocking sight lines around intersections, the city added posts that prevent cars from parking next to crosswalks. Hoboken didn't stop anyone from driving, but the city re-envisioned itself as a place for walking, biking, and community connection. Truth be told, Hoboken has advantages. It is dense, compact, and wealthy. It's located just across the Hudson River from Manhattan, so its population is predisposed to walking. Plus, it doesn't have highways cutting through its urban core. That's true, but Rochester does. Um, where are we? All right, well, now we're standing on a highway. Are we or really? what was a highway. <laughs> That's Eric Frisch. He's now the Deputy Commissioner of Neighborhood and Business Development for the City of Rochester. But for 15 years, he was the Transportation Planner for the City. 
Ken and I drive east on the Kensington Expressway for 65 miles until it ends at another urban highway, the Inner Loop. It's a sunken ring road encircling downtown Rochester, which happens to be my hometown. But today, the trench only makes up part of a circle, because a section of the Inner Loop was buried in 2017, and Eric, Ken, and I are standing on it. If I had been here not so long ago, uh, I would have been driving down this road at 55 miles an hour and bypassing this neighborhood. My, 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 My goal would be to get through here as fast as humanly possible. That's right. That's what it was for. It's get you around downtown. You don't have to navigate those pesky streets. Yeah. Just bypass everything, and all you get to see are the nice little, nice retaining walls. Eric takes us on a tour we've of got, the old uh, inner loop. We've got breweries and uh, bars and restaurants sprinkled throughout. We've got hundreds of units of housing on one side. Leafy, leafy streetscape above a protected two-way bike facility. And then a much narrower three-lane surface street. Uh, creating just a more calm and uh, uh, walkable, sort of just what you'd expect in a city. And how much does removing a highway cost? Total cost of removing the highway from soup to nuts, just under $24 million. Which uh, does not seem like a lot. Not a lot. Yeah. No. Um, and that $24 million has leveraged uh, well over $200 million in investment. Now is starting to circulate back through the community. And so you're starting to see how an investment like this can truly make an impact on the community. So in a place like this or in any central urban community, you have to ask, is this the best use of that land? If we're going to spend the money anyways, why not spend it in a way that's going to truly improve the lives around it? You know, if we had rebuilt this highway, we would have probably spent more than what we spent on removing it, and we wouldn't have had any of this economic impact. You'd be still standing in a parking lot, I'm sure. I remember that parking lot. It's now a block of mixed-use development, including a row of townhouses. Today, the neighborhood looks so pristine that I feel like I'm on a soundstage. And the number of walkers and bikers here has soared. Right? It's not just the dollars and cents of what's been built here. It's the human experience of seeing people out walking their dogs, going for a jog, taking that bike ride. That would have never happened before because of that highway being there. I tell Eric that it's hard to imagine there was ever a highway here. That's the point, right? Yeah. <laughs> it just feels like a community. What, what do you mean there was ever a highway here? That's, that's the goal. But that's not Eric's only goal. So little changes like this get us part of the way. Um, but we're going to have to have a, a real concerted long-term effort uh, in order to truly move that needle uh, towards a less uh, autocentric future. Buffalo is also trying to move the needle. A half century after it was built, the Kensington Expressway's infrastructure is now deteriorating. The retaining walls are crumbling, and guardrails separating the community from the highway are increasingly unsafe. And what is best for the suburbs and downtown commercial district is no longer driving the conversation about the neighborhood. A new vision is finally resonating with government officials. Stephanie Barber-Jeter, who we heard from at the top of the episode, has advocated for safer infrastructure for the past 15 years. Now there's finally light at the end of the tunnel, the Kensington Expressway Tunnel. Plans are in the works to put a cap on the highway, to put a cover over the road, and turn it into an underground tunnel. 
In 2021, a bipartisan federal government effort funded the Reconnecting Communities Pilot Program, a $1 billion effort to remove urban highways across the country. It awarded the Kensington Expressway cap $55 million. That sounds like a lot of cash, but it's not nearly enough to cap a major highway. Crystal Peoples-Stokes is the majority leader of the New York State Assembly. She was born and raised in Buffalo and now represents the neighborhood surrounding the Kensington Expressway. She's an advocate for capping the 33 highway. We spent time, my staff and I, uh, talking to people in non-traditional circles about why it was more important for people to focus on covering the 33 in terms of the health impacts on people, the quality of life there, uh, the um, access to more trees, and just the, the reconnecting of communities and the restoring of commercial strips that can be restored because a lot of storefronts are still there. Um, it, could, it could work. So it, it took us some time to do that, but um, I think it, it was worth it. And somehow we kind of call that in this office, getting the quiet work done. The majority leader's support is a positive development for the project. Because when you're trying to raise nearly a billion dollars, it's good to have friends in high places. When Kathy Hochul became governor, she just really just hampered down on it and said, we're going to make this happen. But the plan to cap the Kensington Expressway has its critics, including those who think the project doesn't go far enough, like Brother Bell. Clifford Brother Bell is a 93-year-old activist. The street he lived on as a kid intersected the Humboldt Parkway. I've, I've been out in the community itself for over 70 years. Somewhere doing something about something. Today, Brother Bell meets us at his local public library. He drives up in his black SUV and bounds over to meet us, the cane in his hand dragging behind him as an afterthought. For Brother Bell, the effects of the Kensington Expressway tearing through his neighborhood can never be reversed. I've been against it from day one. I mean, this, this thing destroyed a whole lot of stuff. You, you can't, once you've done something of this nature, there's no reconciliation because the damage has not already been done, but it's still in force. How can you ever get over the effect of segregation that keeps us separated? That's impossible. I don't care how much money you spend. It's never going to be like it was. But Brother Bell does feel that his community could be improved with a different kind of financial investment. With the kind of money they're spending, they could support a whole lot more African-American businesses. Whether Buffalo's east side can be revived remains to be seen. But we know it is possible to improve traffic safety in America. Still, Beth Osborne tells us we have a long road ahead. We need a focused effort to change communities, to help communities take down those barriers uh, and the damage they did. The problem is we're spending significantly more money dividing communities while we're spending money reconnecting communities. So it's like we're, we're digging a ditch with, you know, a huge shovel and we're refilling it with a teaspoon. And that's not good enough. And that's what reconnecting communities is. And everyone says, we won. We're going to spend $1 billion reconnecting communities and $450 billion dividing them. We make it much worse. And then we pat ourselves on the back because we have a few examples of making things better. Nevertheless, the federal reconnecting communities funding is intended to make Buffalo's east side better. 
In about a year, the New York State Department of Transportation will break ground to put a cap on the Kensington Expressway. Will capping the highway reduce the number of auto deaths in Buffalo in the short term? The jury's out. But the project will finally reconnect the two sides of the Humboldt Parkway and restore its green space. It's a step towards reimagining our cities, and Stephanie Barber Jeter hopes the cap on the Kensington Expressway will improve the health, safety, and the connections of the community that lives beside it. I've had people tell me this to my face. That part of town is not worth that investment. You would not put your family in this situation. So why should we? Only way you can is that you're not quite sure we're an equal human being as you. That you need for your life what I need for mine. I think that could change. And that's what I know this parkway is going to do, y'all. I do. Y'all check us out in five years. You won't know the place. I see a greenway of trees that refreshes the community, that cleans the air, that brings a sense of hope back. But it takes time. It takes a lot of people a long time, you know, which I never thought I'd be doing, particularly in retirement, that I'd be working on something like this. I had planned on sitting on my porch doing some deep couch sitting for a couple years, and that has not happened. But you know what? This work, I feel it is worthy of our lives. You know, if you could do anything and you wouldn't fail, would you do this? Absolutely. (laughs) The producers of Century Lives are Carrie Thompson, Aaron Bump, and Camilo Garzon. Music for this episode was provided by Joni Mitchell, Audio Jungle, and Ramtin Arablouei. Support for this podcast comes from the National Council on Aging, the national voice working to ensure that every person can age with health, financial security, and dignity. Find out more at ncoa.org. And from AARP, the nation's largest nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to empowering people 50 and older to choose how they live as they age. To find out more, visit aarp.org. Century Lives is a production of the Stanford Center on Longevity, where our mission is to support ideas and research so that century-long lives are healthy and rewarding ones. You can find out more about us at longevity.stanford.edu. Thanks for listening. I'm Ken Stern.